the builders, the Doylem who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutenberg and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of this builders episode on Chazonish. Welcome back to you, Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. I'm Gedalia. I'm anxious to go on. So, Ephraim, I'm going to make a bold assumption, which is that the last episode was so riveting that everyone remembers every word, and so we can jump straight back into things. 100%. So here's the jump. We left off at the end of the last episode of the Chazun Ish, age 55, arriving in Eretz Yisrael in 1933. And he has only just two decades left to live, and yet in those two decades are going to provide many of the underpinnings of the nascent post-war Haredi world. Sounds like an exaggeration, so let's unpack that. And I know in the first episode you described the situation of Menachem Cohen, who himself was a little child and grew up running in and out of the Chazanish's house, essentially. His father was Menachem uh, of Moshe Cohen Levitsky. He described the militancy and the fevered atmosphere of the time in which the Zionist movement was ascendant. It was all-conquering. The young people wanted to be there. I think today you can look back at summer, you can look even, certainly when I first arrived in Israel like 20 years ago, people then on the Supreme Court, you find the Hessians and Diskins and names like this, you know, the upper ranks of the security services. And you still saw the imprint of the fact that uh, a few generations before, secular Zionism had swept all before it and had drawn the cream of the religious youth into its institutions. And in that world, that post-war world, the Torah world was tiny. It was nothing to speak of. The yeshivas had been destroyed. Community was under attack. And I think it's hard to imagine, as you say, you came 40 years ago and learned just how militant things were and they had been. I didn't, when I came 40 years ago, I didn't feel it. Mm-hmm. But I heard stories and I thought it was like Satma propaganda. And then I looked into it and I found out that these were facts. This was not, the government even fell because of that. If you remember uh, Rabbi Menachem Cain speaking here of Gulak's Hespit a few days ago. Which he said it was a five-year-old. Was that the thing where he said a five-year-old? No, 15-year-old. 15-year-old brought down, sorry. Right, right. 15-year-old brought down the government. What was that? Noach Berman, I think his name was, right. He started making demonstrations about what was going on in the camps, in the, in the immigrant camps. They didn't allow from Jews to come in to teach Torah to the kids. Who were the Yemenites. Right, and they didn't allow them to convince them to go to Jewish schools. And it was even worse than that, because if you had a job, is because you remember the Histadrut. Right. right. And the Histadrut knew where you sent your kids and who you voted. Mm-hmm. My mother told me something, really. My, my mother, she made Aliyah with us like 40 years ago, but she had uncles who were living here in the beginning of the state. And the Kalpiot, that they call the ballot boxes, the ballot boxes. Right, were in the factories. Okay, They knew exactly who you were voting for. Right? If you didn't vote for the right person, you didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so Mapai was like the... Mapai was Ben-Gurion's party. was the le- Labour. Right, right. The le- leftist... Fleget Israel or whatever they were. Something like that, right. Yeah, and what I'd say is the zeitgeist, the overwhelming societal consensus was around secular, militantly secular, and even atheistic Zionism, right? There's obviously religious Zionism and things, but these are all small movements. Essentially, the power centers were there in the secular Zionist movement. And for anyone to oppose it, you know, in this post-war euphoria of the early state days, when these were the forces that dominated, and the Torah world, I'd say, had a near-death experience. 
right? The Chazan Ish was able not only to oppose it, he came in and he created a new reality, setting halachic standards, but also defining the attitudes to questions, every question from yeshivas to women's draft to the IDF and to voting and the entire intersection between how to treat the state and how to treat this overwhelming majority of the new yeshiv was secular. And so that was an incredible, something incredible that he took on his shoulders. But let's break that down to understand the Chazanish's influence and in those last two decades of his life, what he achieved and for which he's this preeminent builder. Let's break it down and talk about halacha at the moment. Because remember, he's coming in 1933. And one of the first things, within a few years, he's dealing with Shemitah. In the broader picture of mitzvahs at Telos Baris, the mitzvahs, the, the agricultural mitzvahs, the uniquely apply in Eretz Yisrael. Shemitah, the first Shemitah he encountered was 1938, if I'm not mistaken. Tell me a little bit about the consensus. He came into a kind of a vacuum when it came into regarding those mitzvahs. It would be a mistake to say that no one in Eretz Yisrael was makbid on mitzvahs Telos Baris before the Chazanish came, because we had the Yishuv Ayoshan in Yushalayim, and probably some in Tveria a drop and in Tzvas a drop. But we're talking about the Yishuv HaChadosh. We're talking about the new immigrants, the new communities that were sprouting up all over Eretz Yisrael. That was a difficult challenge. And we know that uh, Rav Kook, the first chief rabbi, he wanted to change that. We have a documented travels that he took together with Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld, mm-hmm. right? We call them the Masa Rabbanim. There's pictures from that, incredible pictures, yeah. Right. And we know they tried, but there really was no great success in that area. In getting what the farmers and this new right. agriculture, agriculture was, this was a country that was, we know, was starving for decades. It was hardly mm. anything produced. It was very difficult right. to, to keep Schmidt etc. So I just want to tell you like a snippet of a story, which will give you like a, a glimpse into what, what was going on. I had a friend who is a nephew of the Rashiva of Kultura. At a certain time, he wanted to interview the founding members of Kibbutz Chafetz Chaim mm-hmm. when they were still alive. Maybe there's still maybe a few that are still alive today. I was just there a few weeks ago for Shabbos, and it didn't look like they were founding. There was a distinctly yekish and old high feeling in, in, in the shul that was definitely, that was very beautifully kept and everything. Right. But I don't think there's any founders there still. Right. So he interviewed it back then. I'm talking about like, 20 years ago, he told me the story. So he interviewed the founding members, and they told me, tell me it was fascinating what he said. They said that they started, they had Shilas about Klus Baritz, Shemitah, all kinds of Shilas. And okay, they're looking for a Rav to Paskin for them. And they came to Yushalayim, they came to the Rabbon of the Badats. And you have to understand, these are Yekish farmers, okay? The vast cultural gap was too much to bridge. It wasn't working. It wasn't working. They weren't just understanding each other. I mean, it wasn't like the old Hungarian Rabbonim, the old Yishuv. Pashut wasn't going. And then they sent a letter to the Rabchaim Oizer, and they said, what should we do? So they said, go ask the Chazunish. So they said, who's the Chazunish? So he said, okay, go to Bnei Brak and find out who the Chazunish is. So they go to Bnei Brak, and no one knows the Chazunish. No one knows who the Chazunish is. So they finally, one guy said, ah, oh, you probably mean Rab Shayale, who lives in this little bootke over here. Go talk to him. And they come in, and the way he related to them, and he got down into the details, and they were shocked at his total command of the Matthias part of the Elchus and the Halachic part. And he gave them, like, detailed instructions and everything that they asked. And that started the Chazanish's influence and all the Pai Yishuvim in Eretz Pai, let's just open that up. Pai, Le Yisrael was this kind of agricultural, farming, 
break off, eventually became break off from Agudas Israel, but a lot of them were Yekas. Right, right. And they believed in settling the land and uh, not only living here, but actually cultivating the land. Right. And if you go down, if you take the road down from Latrun, from if you go out of Yushalayim down yeah. to Latrun, then you take the left, like towards Ashdod and Kiryat Gat, all that. On the road there, you'll see all the Yishuvim of Pai. You saw that, the Chavetz Chaim, Binyamin, Yad Binyamin, right. Bnei Re'im, I think it's, yes. Bet Chilkia. Bet Chilkia. I think, is also part of that. Shalavim is also in that Shalavim, area. that's right. Right, so, uh, yeah. so all those. So they have five, five or six of them. That's right, they colonized like an area. And that relationship with the Chazin Ish led to an iconic image. Was it not the Chazin Ish went out to the fields? I've seen it as a painting of the picture. <laughs> actually staying in someone's place. For some reason, you see him wearing like a white frock. I don't know what it meant. Like uh, Maybe it was gray or something. Maybe it was gray and the picture wasn't. But he's together. The tall man who's together with in the short jacket yeah. was Rav Kama Kahana. Was he not? I think, first of all, you're right that Rav Kama Kahana was like the main person in Pai, the Pai Yishuvim, who had the halachic connection mm-hmm. with the Chazanish. There's no doubt about that. Okay? But I think in that picture, it wasn't Rav Kama Kahana. It was the Rav of the first version of Chaim, which I think was called Netiva. And the Rav there was, think his name was Moshe Peleg, I think. I think the picture was with him, not with Rav Kamal Khan. Mm, interesting. I, I think that's the personal picture. I, I, I just saw it in someone's house in Beit Chilkia. There's a painting of that picture, and we're right. just wondering who it was. Okay. Right. Do you know the interesting thing? If you're looking at the incredible, um, this is a, a classic example, how his influence can be traced for till today an incredible thing i think in the last Shemitah cycle which was a couple of years ago i wrote about this because it just sticks in my mind as incredible experience i spent a day down by the gaza border and in the region there there's all these farms all different stripes all different types and what i was checking into was a wave of new people who had net farmers who'd never kept Shemitah. either they never kept Shemitah whatsoever or they'd done for years generations they and their parents uh, they had some Mechira selling the land according to this other you know of cook and I found there was an incredible statistic. And this I heard from the organization in charge of Shmita, Karen Ashvias, heard from their representative, said for the first time, this is a historic thing, for the first time since... Kama Samedina. Well, but even while we listen to this statistic, most of the agricultural, a majority, more than 50% of the agricultural land in Eretz Yisrael was kept Shmita properly. Wow, that's and, and, and they showed me, they were actually an incredible thing. They had on like this Google map, they were able to plot using Karen Kayemet's, uh, the data, it divides the whole country into these kind of agricultural plots. They're actually, whatever is legally a separate parcel of land, some thin, some fat, some big, some long, whatever it is. And they were able to zoom in on each parcel of land, what its status was, which was an incredible thing to see. Wow. But he said, this is, and they showed what has happened is there was a jump of something like 20 to 30% over one Shemitah, over one cycle, an incredible number. Of people. In other words, if previously there'd been uh, uh, 25, 30% keeping, here was other 55, 60% keeping, including vast tracts of land that had never been ahead. And, and some of the people had never kept Shemitah, weren't keeping, some of them didn't even keep Shabbos. That was an incredible thing. They're keeping Shemitah without keeping Shabbos. But what I found interesting was two of the farmers I'd met were from the very, the Khardal, what is the Haredi Lumi wing of the national religious Dati Lumi world. They'd been told by the Rabbonim, keep Shemitah Lechumra this time. It's a trend out there. They were keeping, wow. one was a first-time farmer. It was very hard for him. The other was a, th- a second or third-generation farmer. He said, we always kept had to Mechira. And what I saw then is incredible to see. If you trace forward the Chazanish's influence on what's going on today, in front of our eyes, right? More than half, for the space of a year, more than half of the agricultural lands in Eretz Yisrael 
of vast tracts of land. Incredible. The Chazinish could never, nobody could have dreamed of such a thing. But he started it. He started it. You can see the impact of the Chazinish in that. I want to point out something very interesting. Discovered a few years ago that in our very limited perspective of Gdolim, so we say, okay, so the Rav Kook was the big Mako, mm. right? And Chazanish was the big Machmer, right? And especially in Shemitah, right? Rav Kook held the Vetemechira, and the Chazanish was opposed to Vetemechira. But when I learned the Sugya, it mamish comes out fakir, okay? What comes out is like this. Rav Kook refused to accept the leniencies that the Chazanish later on accepted Right, and therefore realize that there's no way that these people would survive, and that's why you would have to do hetemechira, right? And the Chazanish preferred to keep the global keeping of shemitah while trying to find every loophole possible to allow them to do what is possible through in a, in a shemitah year. For example, okay, till this day the Eid Haredus does not hold of the concept called Oitzebezd. Right, I was going to suggest that. Right? The only time they use Oitzebezd is for Esroigim. Okay? Oitzebezd being a concept that, although you're not allowed to trade in the period that, that was, uh, right. was grown during Shemitah, fruit, but if a Beistin can appoint people to harvest it and to then to sell it, and so there is effectively a trade in Shemitah produce just using a, a loophole. Right. And the Eid Haredus never accepted that. And the Chazanish expanded that. So you see, it just takes away our limited perspective. What we mean is the kind of simplicities we're we're used to spouting about this. The Mahmoud, the Mekel, is hiding a lot under the surface. A few years later, we see a very famous example of the Chazanish's emerging status as this giant of Alocha which was in the wartime when we know that the Mir Yeshiva community, other yeshivas and many others, Jews escaped from Russia, from Poland, they escaped from the Nazis and they traveled across to the Far East, which they went to Japan and then they went across to Shanghai. And there was a question about Yom Kippur, if I'm not mistaken. It started with Shabbos, but Shabbos you can be machmer, not to do Molochas Doraisa on two days. It's mm-hmm. not Nishke Ferlach, you mm-hmm. can take care of that. Yom Kippur, the fast of two days, that's a challenge. Well, the question being, right. Jews hadn't really lived in the area before, or not en masse. Right. It depends on how you draw the deadline, which will determine which day is Shabbos. And if you want to be machmer b'safek, you can do that on Shabbos, but on Yom Kippur, you're going to be... It's not practical to fast two days, right. two days in a row. Uh, the Briskov was, because of that, refused to sign any telegram. In that context, he was afraid that people would, would fast for two days and be massacring themselves. And endanger themselves. Right. right. So uh, this question really, I mean, the people living there, they dealt with this question before. There was a Jewish community there. was a Rav who was living there who wrote a tshuva on this. And he had a psak, which I think kept the local Saturday as the Shabbos, Mm -hmm. according to his shita. Well, what was his approach to Yom Kippur? No, so it would be the same thing. Right. But when the Mir Yeshiva came, we were talking about the fact that no one knew who the Chazanish was in those days. Bachram and Yeshiva didn't either know. Mm-hmm. And there was like a dramatic meeting that the Mashgiach at the time was Rav Chatzke Levinstein. Mm-hmm. And he got up and he told the following story. He said that he spoke to Rav Chaim Oizer before the war. And Rav Chaim Oizer told him that in every generation, there's one person that receives a special siyata d'ishmaya for Psak. Okay, this is not Rav Chaim Oizer Tzchidosh. I heard this in the name of Chassam Seifer as well. This is no nekuda that every generation has a person who has the Siyat Rishmai of Psak. And Rav Chatzk Levinstein said that the Chazonish 
he had to see out to the Shema in the name of Chaim Moise, that in this generation it's the Chazonish, and therefore we're going to send the question to the Chazonish. So while the other refugees were sending like a joint letter to the chief rabbi Herzog and to the Ger Rebbe, who then forwarded on to Rabbi Michal Tikachinsky and other Rabbanim, the Miri Shiva was sending their Shaila to the Chazonish to decide. And there was hope that at a certain point they would reach a joint uh, decision, but uh, that didn't happen. Oh, you mean the two groups were aware that each other had asked the question? Right, right. And there was a convention uh, convened in Yerushalayim, and I think it was on Sangdalia or Motsoyit Sangdalia, I think. And they decided to adopt the local custom of that Rav who I, I spoke about before. And the Chatunish sent a telegram with a opposite decision. It says, the day that they fast, you can eat, and the day that I tell you, you should fast, right? I think it goes, I think that was the Lashon of the Chazanesh. There's one Akuda there. I'm not going to get into the whole halachic debate because there's so many Sfarim, there's so many articles written about it. But since you mentioned before that Akuda about the Chazanesh, he had this Koyach Asvara, that he was able to machria things because that's the way it seemed to him. I think it came to fore in this situation because if you draw the dateline through the ocean the way the common practice is in the secular world, mm -hmm. so that saves you a problem. Why? Because you won't have a situation where a guy is waking up on one side of the street, right? And for him, it's Sunday morning, and he waves to his friend who's on the other side of the street, and it's Monday morning for him. Yeah. You're saving that because it goes through the ocean. Right. But if you follow Chazanish's approach, so it comes out that it does cut through a land mass. Where, where does it go through? I think it, it affects Australia, I think is right. So you're going to have a problem like that. I mean, it's logically, it doesn't make sense, right? So the Chazanish was not deterred by that. And I hope I'm presenting it properly. I'm, I'm willing to accept any criticism about the way I'm presenting it. Send us a telegram if we're right. wrong. But the Chazanish came up with this Givaldi Chiddush, which I think was his Svarami delay, which is his own Svara, which he called it Encholkim Bayabasha, which means that if the line hits into a landmass, right, so the entire landmass will follow the majority of the landmass, right, and won't change its state because the line went through it. Okay, you understand what I'm trying to say? I mean, in effect, it will go around the ocean. It will go, right. It goes so, through the ocean. So the big, the Kiddush of this will be that if you're on the landmass, it will be one day. But if you go take a dip into the ocean, right. you'll be in another day. Right. right. But he saved that problem of having two people on the same street. Okay. And I think this was Misvara delay. Where, where did he pluck that one from? Right. And based on that, he, he passed into Shiloh. Fascinating. Somewhere, somehow... You know, by the time he was Nifta, what, just over a decade after the Psak, there was no one who hadn't heard of him, right? He'd emerged totally. And so it was, that was the very fascinating emergence in his time in, in Eretz Yisrael as this world-ranking place. But he also, in those, I think it's his influence, went beyond Halacha, which was building the nascent Torah world, the yeshiva world. And that very much, I think, came down to a question of, as Rafaim, uh, as you mentioned before, we had if you open the Igros Chazanish, letters of the Chazanish, it's one after the other. Letters, in hindsight, is an incredible thing. This was this titanic Godel who had dedicated his life to learning to a degree that hadn't been seen. It was just incredible to see until the end of his, you know, the outer limits of his strength. And there he's taking the time 
day after day, time after time, take his time to write letters about the most mundane things to every bracha, about the beginning, you know, how to begin, how to learn a Gemara, this bracha's got a problem, how to learn this bracha is a bit feeling a bit down, maybe this bracha needs a chavrusa. In other words, he felt that's the way to build a new Torah world. You literally build using the smallest building blocks, and th- those were the letters. But I think it's important to find that there was another aspect, which was when we first recorded this episode, the original podcast on the Chazanish, the one that is now a collector's edition and won't see the light of day, it was just after the tira of the Ponitish Rosh Hashiv Regershon Edelstein. And that was an example of how Chazanish built using, he had an eye for young talent, right? Because I think it was Edelstein, Regershon Edelstein himself, who was sent. The Chazanish saw him, identified early his ability to teach and to be a Rebbe, and he put him on the path to what became 80 years of Harabotsa Satira. I think I mentioned at that time when we recorded it is that my first meeting with Rabbi Gershon Edelstein was at a Nichol Mavelim, and I didn't know who it was. And I saw him coming down the hallway, and my first machshava was, I never met such a calm person in my life before. The way he carried himself, I don't know if you ever saw him, or yeah. Dalia. Yeah. The way he carried himself was such mesinus, such shalva. It influenced you. It was like a shock because, you know, you're coming from like a tense and hectic world. And all of a sudden you see someone who's totally tranquil. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and they say the Chazanish realized this when he was a youngster. And he says that he, he's a balmum. He has a he's blemish. A flaw, a blemish. Right. So, so one gear says he, was, he has a blemish that he doesn't know how to get angry. Like the Chazanish himself. And another gear so was that he doesn't even have a shminis shibishminis shibagaiva. Which is it's meant to a person at Talmud Chachman to have some latent trace of haughtiness to enable him to stand up for himself and enable him to other right. people to. He didn't even have that. Right. He detected the greatness of Reb Gershon when he was a youngster. And so it's incredible. I think at age 17, the Chazanish said Reb Gershon Edelstein on the path of Zubacha then to start giving Shira. And eventually, I think at age 20, something around there, he started giving the Shira that would eventually, I think, carry on for another 80 years. And right. just numerically, in terms of the number of people who went through the shurim, considered themselves in some way Talmud or Edelstein, that he was a talent scout. He was building a world. And I don't think the Chazanish set up yeshivas, but he put many individuals and set them on their way. And, and therefore, in a very real way, he was the builder of the Torah world that we see today. When we talk about the Chazanish as a builder, I think ultimately it has to come down to his setting the guidelines and setting the framework for the interaction of what was eventually to become the Haredi world with the state of Israel. And I know, Rabbi Fram, you've got a lot to say about that. You're the Mur of the Shemites on this. So take it away. So we have to divide it into two parts, okay? One is our relationship with individual secular Jew, what we call in, in Hebrew, Hiloni, Tzibua Hiloni. Our relationship being how a Torah community should look on the entity called secularism. Secular Jews, not secularism, okay. but the Jews as an individual. Okay. Why is this important? Because there are sources in Chazal which talk about people on Mechal Shabbos and things and even worse than that, and they're very harsh. I mean, if you look into the sources, there's the so-called Moridian Vleimalin, which means is that you don't save someone who's Bikoris and... It's very, very strict. So if you take these things literally, right? And by the way, there are people today on the fringes who take these chazalim literally. But if you take them, then there's no way. There's no way to carry on a normal 
lives. A coexistence. A coexistence, right? And the Chazanish came up with tremendous Chiddush. And by the way, there are people who argued on that Chiddush, okay? Among them, Rav Yashiv and the others, I had Rashivas of mine who argued. But everyone agrees that once the Chazanish paskened it, so we don't argue with the Chazanish. There's a Muslim called, in Allah called Kvar Hoyra Zokin, right? The, the, the elder has ruled. Yeah, so, so we accept his ruling. But his ruling was really an expansion of a concept that's mentioned in Chazal. The context that it's mentioned, I think, is Mesech Shabbos. It's talking about a person who wakes up one day and realizes that as a child, he was left in the street in some Goyesha town, right? And he realizes only later on in life that he's a Jew and he's been doing Averis his entire life. So the question is, how many korbanas, how many chattas does he have to bring? Known as a tinnik shenishba. All right. So that's the concept called tinnik shenishba. It means nishba ben hagoyim, right? A captive. Nakum, a child right? who was captive. Right. He, was, he grew up, uh, essentially grew up by goyim. That's the concept over there, right? So if you take that concept in the literal sense, so it means only someone who did, had no idea what Judaism is, no idea that he was a Jew, and that's it. Hold on. The upshot of that concept is that he's not treated stringently as someone who's as rebelled a, against right. the Torah. He is, he's one big shaygig. One big shaygig. He doesn't know, and therefore he can be part of Am Yisrael. Right. But Chazanish expanded that Kiddush. And he said that a person who grew up in the secular world, even though he knew that there is Judaism and he knew that he is a Jew, right? And he knew that they're from Jews and he knew, knows that there is a concept called halacha, right? And he does not follow halacha because of his upbringing. That is called Tinuk Shanishba, according to the Chazanish. He expanded that to include that entire segment of Klal under that rule, okay? And he added on something else. The first part, people, many people know this concept. Of but the Chazanish added on something else. And he said that there are all the Chazalim that talk about how to relate to someone who is a non-observant Jew is only in a generation where Hashgacha Sashem is Guluya. Meaning that you can see Hashgacha Sashem. The divine intervention of the world is absolutely clear. Right. And you have someone who's even so, right, is ignoring that divine intervention and he's going against Halachas in order to prevent those actions of gaining ground by other people, so you're going to have to take drastic measures to take care of him that he shouldn't continue, right? But when you have a dorja, so whatever you're going to do is going to cause a reverse reaction. If you're going to treat them the way the simple source is right, that you have to treat them, you're going to cause other people not to become from. And that's why that doesn't apply today. These two chidushim change the entire perspective of how do you relate to non-religious Jews. It's an incredible thing, because think about without them, there is literally no possibility of coexistence between the block of Shomotar Mitzvahs, religious Jews and non-religious Jews, because the non-religious Jews will be one step away from being, it's, it's just something that cannot be tolerated or, or, or etc. There's no way of interacting with them. His final line in that, Nakuda is astounding. He says, and the only thing we can do is, which means that you have to pull them towards you with, give me those oh, chains, chains of, of love. Chains of love. Oh, what a beautiful, poetic... Uh, and I pointed out, I wrote about this a few weeks ago, I pointed out that the Chazanish was not talking about right-wing secular Jews. The majority of the Jews at that time were left-wing secular Jews, and he still said, you have to pull them towards Yiddishkeit, So the idea that you could stand there in the streets and throw stones at a car and say, Shabbos, Shabbos, the idea that's going to be effective in drawing people in is, I think, a non-starter. It's possible to take on the Chazanish. I mean, I remember we ha I once had it when I was living in Yerushalayim, living near Barilam, where a lot of this, you know, clashes had happened. 
over the years. And we had a secular lady, actually. She came from a very secular Israeli background, not from at all. Uh, still not religious then when she came. And the only thing she'd heard was about the stone throwing. She knew nothing. And there are so many secular Israelis who know you the most incredible lack of knowledge of real basics. But what they do know is that religious Jews throw stones. What a beautiful uh, you know, <laughs> advert it is for Yiddishkeit. In other words, the idea that stone throwing has any positive effect it's just about the Chazanish gave a framework to that thing and he said to draw with chains of love there is no other way but that's only one part of the story okay we have to continue to how to relate to a Zionist government the state as the state as a sovereign body do we go and do we demonstrate every Monday and Thursday right is that the way to do things is that power struggle on the streets is that the way to do things so Chazanish had a very clear hashkaf in this as well I want to point out, people don't realize this, aside for the Rabbanu of the Eid Haredis, right, the Litvisha Hanhaga, right, and the majority of the Hasidic Hanhaga in Eretz who follow that approach, will not call for an official demonstration. Against the government. Against the government. The only thing that they might do at a very extreme circumstance, which came up in what they call the Afghanata Chatzimilion, I don't know what they... This was, it was against the Supreme Court. Ten years ago. Right, right, right. It was at Atzeres Tefillah, right? With no chanting and no, no slogans or anything. It was just an Atzeres Tefillah in the street. We have hundreds of thousands of people and there are a coming to Davin. And when that's over, no official demonstrations, right? You can check me up on that, that, that Nakuda. This all stems from the Chazanish's approach to how to deal with a Zionist government. And that is, the way we fight the government is another cheder and another yeshiva and another koilo and another from neighborhood. That's the only way to do it. I think it's important, though, to expand what it was. It wasn't just a question of do we demonstrate, do we not demonstrate. There was the question you have, the chazanish was against the establishment of the state. But the fact is, once it is, how do you interact with it and the Chazunish said, de facto, you recognize it. That's what you do. You recognize de facto in the sense that you participate in elections. And you participate in elections. And you get involved in local politics and national politics. And that decision, which was disputed by those other the Haredis, that decision led to the existence today of what we take for granted, which is the exercise of religious, or let's call it Haredi political power, which, I mean, the current government... Without the Haredi parties, right, we're talking about 15 seats. It's an incredibly... But again, I want to put it into perspective, okay? The goal of the Haredi parties is not to take over the government, not to change, if you'd like to compare it to the Datilumi type of a vision of being participating in the politics of Eretz Israel. The goal of the Haredi parties in the government is to save what is possible to save, and they give the famous example of the boy who's going to sell apples in the marketplace. Rav Shach used to mention this many times and comes over to him in the middle and kicks over his apple cart. All the apples go uh, rolling onto the ground and the kid is standing there and crying. And someone comes over to him and says, instead of crying, try to grab a few apples for yourself. That is, in essence, the hashkafa, right? Even if we do participate in, in, the, in the politics, there's one goal for that, and that is to save whatever is possible to save. You 
know, there's been a lot of legends and stories have arisen around a particular event, which was a meeting between the Chazanish in the leader of the Zionist movement who became the first Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion. Their meeting has become somewhat a legendary in the sense it was a real event. In that meeting, a lot of stories have been said. There was very few people in the room, and it's important to kind of zoom in on what was and what wasn't said, what we do know about that, because that set the stage for, from that meeting, came out the official agreement, assent of the most influential prime minister Israel has ever had, what is called the State of Israel's founding father. His official assent to the religious status quo, which in one way or another has been preserved to 75 years later today and continues to, as it were, to shape the relationship between the religious Jews in Israel and the secular majority. So what do we know about that meeting? What we know about that meeting is that there were only three people in the room at that meeting. We had the Chazanish, and we had on the other side, uh, David Ben-Gurion, who'd come over presumably from his house on Osteroto in Tel Aviv, which is where he lived. And he came over with his uh, aide, who was Ephraim Navon, if I'm not mistaken. Yitzhak Navon. Yitzhak Navon. Ephraim Navon was the Machne Ephraim who Yitzhak Navon descended from. (laughs) (laughs) Yitzhak Navon. And he was allowed to be in. But I think there were also kids scurrying around, including, as mentioned before, from Menachem Cohen, who mentioned, he said he was there at this famous, this almost like clash of civilizations, this amazing collision of worlds. He was there and they said, they shooed the kids away, but the kids were like monkeys, like it sounded like, climbing all over the outside of the house. And what was and wasn't said there was, I think, you know, there's an article in Haaretz, which is uh, interesting to read because quotes from Navon. This is an article that's written on site. You're saying when it took place. Yes, Haaretz, the left-wing secular paper was at the time. And I saw a headline from Ma'ariv newspaper, which was at the time, Ben-Gurion Nifgash Noad, or Nifgash Im Chazon Ish, it says, <laughs> with not the Chazon Ish, with Chazonish, right? Because that, they didn't know who this person was, but they came, they've suddenly heard about something called Chazonish. And the Haaretz is it's very interesting to read. It says, Ben-Gurion recorded his impressions of the meeting in his diary, where he described our Karelitz as possessing the face and eyes of a spiritual man. He noted the rabbi spoke through the entire encounter in a good spirit, much laughter, lacking in a zealot's anger, even though there was definitely something of the zealot about him, although it's hidden from view. Then Ben-Gurion was trying to come up to, with some common ground between the two you know, between secularism and religious Jews. And then the Chazan Ish comes up with his famous marshal, his famous marshal of the full and empty wagon. And he says, Navon, writing sometime later about the meeting, recounted Harabah Karelitz, responding to Ben-Gurion's query regarding how can we live together, described a scene from the Talmud in which two camels meet on a path. One of the camels is way down with a load, the other camel is not. The one not carrying the burden must give way to the one that is. The moral of the parable, suggested Karelis, as Haaretz said, was that we, the religious Jews, are analogous to the camel with a load. We carry a burden of hundreds of commitments. You, secular Israel, have to give way. That is something that the secularists till today, especially the knowledgeable ones and the leaders, are still offended by that. Right. And you're calling the secular Jewry in Eretz as empty wagons. Right? That's something that you feel that till today is bothering them. Well, it came up at a meeting about a couple of years ago. He was Yoav, I don't remember his name. Yoaz Hendel. Yoaz Hendel, who was communications, communi- he was then communications minister. And he had, there was a meeting with senior Bonim Rosh Hashiva and, and, and rebels about the issue of the ongoing kosher cell phones. He sat there without his yamulka, 
right? And he sat there and said and quoted, he said to them, don't think that our wagon is empty, he said. Our wagon is perfectly full. And it was the most incredible echo of a meeting. And it goes to show how essentially, till today, we're living out both these sides that were around the table between the Chazun Ish and Ben-Gurion, literally been playing them out for 75 years. And had there not been this meeting between, as it were, you could almost say the founding father of the state of Israel and the founding father, I don't know whether you can say such a thing, of Haredism in Eretz Yisrael, who knows if that status quo would have been set up, they eventually that emerged from there and that continues till today. And their conversation have continued about 90 minutes. And later on, it's interesting to note that later on, someone else challenged Navon and says, oh, you didn't understand the whole thing. You, you didn't report it accurately because they were speaking Yiddish because Navon was Sephardi. And so Navon said to him, Navon said to him, he said, number one, it was all in Hebrew, right? The Ben-Gurion made a condition like that, that it should be conducted in Hebrew. Interesting. So, and Navon said, even if it had been Yiddish, he was a many generations Yerushalmi. His family <laughs> said he understood Yiddish perfectly well. What exactly came out from that meeting? What do we know came out from that meeting? is that the Chazun Ish got a firm promise, and this is the most a concrete promise, that there would be no draft of Yeshiva Bacharim, which at the time, how many Bacharim were from? Do we know how many Bacharim were in Eretz Yisrael at the time? I'm not sure that that came out of that meeting. That was a result of a previous meeting with other G'daylim, but I think this meeting was around Gius Bonos. Well, hold on. From the version I saw, it said that there was a previous meeting, but he held him, he actually extracted a condition from him that this is going to be implemented. And the point being, it was Ben-Gurion's status as the founding father, as the patriarch of the Zionist movement that enabled what was previously a government decision, right, was a firm commitment. And one way or the other, it was definitely a very important interaction because, as you said, there was a separate controversy going on, Gius Bonus, drafting girls. Right. There for sure was a letter, maybe it was after the meeting, a letter between the Chazanish and Ben-Gurion, by the way, written in a very Bekovitic language to Ben-Gurion, mm-hmm. like pleading to him, I know that you have a sensitive soul or something like that, and you for sure will listen to my plea. And he talked about Gius Bonas, and the decision was that even though Gius Bonas passed officially in the government, Ben-Gurion said it will not be officially implemented in practice. Which means that until this day, I think both in the it's an incredible thing to see the reverberations of this meeting 75 years ago, because until this day, literally now, as we speak, one of the central threats to the coalition headed by Bibi Netanyahu of the right-wing religious traditional bloc, which has got 64 seats, a healthy majority, one of the gravest threats to it is the status of the Yeshiva Bacharim, right, which has since grown this a quarter of a million loaned the Torah in Eretz Yisrael, which has gone on, I think, from Gone a up quarter from, of a million includes the younger light. Don't mean that. I stand corrected. For not for the first time. You know, the sheer expansion of the Torah world that we're seeing today it was a few hundred. When the Ben-Gurion gave us a cent. It was 400. It was 400? 400 to, to what we face today, a quarter of a million people who are engaged in, Barcham and Avrech, get engaged in a full-time Torah learning. is kind of a staggering growth. And the Chazinish set the terms for that. And the debates that have continued till this day, that threaten the ongoing government and bring down governments till this day are the ones that were discussed in that meeting all that time ago. The, the Chazanish became this builder on which the whole of this giant Torah world and Eretz Yisrael, which by the way, is in many ways, bears on its shoulders the Torah world certainly of Europe, but increasingly of America in many ways. 
That is so much a product of one man who reached the shores of Eretz Yisrael, a virtual unknown.